It is uh, such a great joy to hear what we are involved in doing around the world uh, through our missionaries, and uh, it's a joy to know that we are uh, involved this morning in giving to what goes straight to people all around the world, uh, reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've often uh, prayed that uh, one day we would have so many of our people uh, spread around the world for the sake of the gospel that we could have a missionary testimony every week of the year, uh, 52 weeks, uh, and fill up the year with those missionary testimonies. And um, God is continuing to call people uh, out to go to the ends of the earth, and I praise God for it. Well, I want to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 14 in this series, Christmas Clarity, uh, based on Titus 2, 11 through 15. And um, I'm going to read that here in a moment and pray for God's mercy as we study here together. I would remind you that um, we are coming to the Lord's table today, and uh, this uh, little setup here is not the best thing I've ever seen, but uh, I do praise God for it in these days, which uh, gives us an opportunity uh, to come to the Lord's table. I'll remind you that the Lord's table is the continuing ordinance of a believer's life. The beginning ordinance is baptism where someone who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a church that affirms the biblical gospel that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And uh, the Lord's Supper is the ordinance that continues after that. And so all who come to the Lord's table and partake of the supper should be those who have been scripturally baptized and they're accountable members of a local church. And so we welcome you to the table Uh, this morning. The Lord's Supper will be actually a part of the sermon, and so I'll direct you uh, as we go. Please stand in reverence of the reading of God's perfect and precious Word. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. O Lord, continue to fill our hearts and minds with the wonder of what it means to say that the grace of God has appeared. Lord, um, help us. Help us to be a waiting people who are full of joy and anticipation and every good work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A while back, I read an article written by a man who who works with people who struggle with narcissistic personality disorder. He was talking about the way that manifests. These these people who have an extreme preoccupation with self, a sense of entitlement, 
and often a sense of, of the way they ought to be viewed by others. And, and there was one trait, he said, that is in some people who struggle in this way um, that really struck me. He said there are some people who struggle in this way who think only about the moment, that moment, how they feel and how what's happening makes them feel and how they look, how they look to other people in that moment. And they function as if there is no past and there is no future. They only think about the now. How does it make me feel? How does it make me look? And so he was talking about the way that uh, affects them and controls them and that people who struggle in this way generally don't have any problem lying because it's not about the past. It's not about the future. It's about what helps me in the moment. And some people who struggle in this way are loud and boisterous and some people are the exact opposite. But the issue is the only thing that matters is the moment. You know, the self-centered struggle with self-preoccupation, not just in a clinical sense of an extreme manifestation of a disorder, is really a universal human struggle. It's really one of the key manifestations of living in a fallen world. If we think about the very beginning, it's preoccupation with self and desires that brings the fall into the world. God has said, here is this bounty, but not this. And another voice comes in and says, has God really said? And the implication is, He's holding out on you. Your life will be better if you partake. And the idea is, I've got to look out for me. This sort of sense, I've got to put me first. What matters now, what matters in the moment, how I feel, how I look, that is what I need to focus on. You know, Christianity helps liberate us from living in this sort of self-centered bondage of the moment. Christianity calls us to see our lives in light of redemptive history. In light of the plan and purposes of God. In light of what God is doing in the world and has been doing from the beginning. And what God has said, it looks like what we could call eternity future. He gives us that glimpse. And we are to live our lives not focused on self and trying to pull stuff out of that story to help us in the moment. We are to live our lives embedded in that story. And so it tells us that those who put their faith in Christ are adopted into the family of God. What happens when someone is adopted? They embrace a new story. There is a past that they didn't know was going to intersect their lives that is now their past. There is a future because they are part of this family that they knew nothing of. So they have to learn. They have to learn who they are. They have to learn their past. They have to learn their future. And we, as the adopted children of God, are to do just that. We, we are to, to read the Bible and we see what God has been doing and how God has promised grace and been pouring out His grace and all of that's been building. So Abraham's story is our story. Moses' story is a part of our story. The prophets are a part of our family story. Building up all the way to the consummation of these things and the 
person and work of Christ. And then we have promises that extend into the future. Because our Father is the sovereign of the cosmos. And all that He said has come to pass, and all that He said will come to pass. So as the adopted children of God, we are to learn our past. And we are to learn our future. Do you see the way that weans us away from self-preoccupation? Think about these two commands that God has given. Think about the ordinances, or what I like to call the signs of the kingdom. These, these physical acts that God has given to remind us of the reality of who we are as His people. The first you think about baptism. When I come out in that water and somebody's going to be baptized and our congregation is receiving their testimony, their witness into the witness of this body, we are all participatory. When that happens, those of you who are in Christ and have obeyed in baptism this way, you can't help it. You think about your baptism. Think about the past. You, you also are to think about Christ. Christ who was baptized, though He had no sin. He was baptized as an example for us to follow. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And before that, you think about the Old Testament and the demands for the people of God to be, to be cleansed. And so you think about the past. The purpose of the sign of the kingdom of baptism, is to make us think about the past. But it's also to make us think about the future. It makes us think about resurrection. Jesus Christ was literally bodily raised from the dead. And Romans 6 says we will receive a resurrection like His. So what we're saying in the baptistry is not just something about the past and the present testimony of God's grace. We're saying something about the future resurrection of the dead. And then we are called to continue coming to the Lord's table. And what do we do? His body for us. His blood for us. What are we doing? We're looking back. We think about when we came to faith, when we came to understand it was His body and His blood for us. And we think beyond that. We think about God who's at work in such a way that there's a whole sacrificial system that is to teach us what He is ultimately going to do in Christ. The blood of bulls and goats never took away the sins of anybody. It all pointed to the One who would come whose blood does. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But Christ has come and shed His blood. His body for us. His blood shed for us. But when we come to the table, we think about the past. We think about our present in Christ. But he also tells us to think about the future. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is explaining what happens at the Lord's table, what we are to do, it ends by saying that we will continue to do this until He comes. Do you see how all of these things are causing us to not be preoccupied with ourselves in the moment? but that we would keep looking back and we would keep looking forward. And that changes completely how we look at ourselves in the now. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, serving in a very difficult place called Crete, trying to help him understand how to help the church, how to 
order the church, how to provide a sense of gospel clarity that this church puts at the very heart of this letter to Titus the appearing of Christ in history. Why would he do that? He wants Titus to train a people to look back and to say with a sense of awe and wonder what we read in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared. The word from which we get our word epiphany. It means uncovering, unveiling, disclosing in the, the birth of Jesus, the, the baby in the manger. We say the grace of God has appeared. But that same word shows up in our text this morning in verse 13. And in verse 13, when it says the appearing, it's not referring to the incarnation of Christ. It's not referring to the enfleshing of Christ. It's not referring to the baby in the manger. This, the appearing, is talking about a future appearing, a future uncovering, a future unveiling, what we often refer to as the Coming of Christ, the second coming, the return of Christ. There is a coming appearing. You see, and it's understanding that we live between these two appearings that is essential for us to live for Christ in the here and now. You see, if we aren't always looking back and always looking ahead, then I guarantee you we're going to be primarily looking at us. And when we formulate our thoughts and our actions as if the world revolves around us, we get everything wrong. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. I say that all the time and I'm not going to stop saying it because we're all in this fight that we would remember who God is and what He's done and how it's supposed to shape how we live. The first thing I want to show you in this text, in verse 13, is waiting from grace to glory. Waiting from grace to glory. Look with me at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, this is a forthright declaration of the deity of Christ. The, the fact that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was God. Fully God and fully man. So this one who appeared, this one who came, is one who was our great God. And He came as a Savior and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Jesus the Messiah. But notice that first word, waiting. The New American Standard Bible translates this, looking. Because they're trying to get uh, to a sense that this waiting is not passive. This is an active waiting, an expectant waiting, a confident waiting, a hopeful waiting. It is anything but passive. There's a certainty to this waiting. This is a sitting on the edge of your seat type of waiting. And it says, for our blessed hope. Blessed. The word means favor of God. To, to delight in the favor of God. We could say this. Waiting expectantly for our happy hope. Waiting expectantly for our joyous hope. 
It tells us what that hope is. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This appearing is the second coming, the return of Christ. But do you see something here? Remember what it said about the first appearing in verse 11? For the grace of God has appeared. And we said on that section that in this passage, the grace of God is personified. Jesus is the grace of God. He is the one who has appeared. But do you notice what this says? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ will appear in His his return as glory personified. Now understand this. When when Christ came in the incarnation, He came... It says, full of glory and truth. So the incarnation involved a manifestation of the glory of God. When Christ was crucified, when He died for guilty sinners, we see a manifestation of the glory of God. But this text is pointing us to a reality. That the glory of God will be manifest and unveiled in the second coming in a way that it couldn't be any other way. Sin is fully, finally, and forever dealt with. The evil one is fully, finally, and forever dealt with. God's people are gathered to Himself. The the word glory means weight. It means light. The, The weight of God's consummation of all things is coming. He is coming. He is appearing in glory. That will be a time in which all things are made right. Do you see it? He comes, the Savior, grace personified in the incarnation. And He comes, glory personified in His return. That's why we have a mission of waiting. Waiting is a spiritual discipline. Most of us don't like to wait. If we hear the word wait, we have negative thoughts. But we wait from grace to glory. That's a privilege waiting that you cannot imagine fully the blessing that that is. We face all the same pain, all the same suffering, all the same heartache, all the same difficulty, all the same betrayals as everyone else, but we are the people who know the story. And so we keep looking back and we say, God has been at work in the very beginning doing what He's doing. And that baby in the manger was the promised Messiah. All of God's promises are yes and amen. And we feel all of those things and we experience them, but we look ahead to the fact He's coming again and it changes us in the here and now. We wait, but we wait from grace to glory, whether we're healthy and unhealthy. We wait from grace to glory whether we're rich or poor. We wait from grace to glory whether we're successful or unsuccessful. We wait from grace to glory whether we are the person we expected to be at this time or whether we're nothing like we expected to be at this time. We always are the people who live between grace and glory and nothing we experience can ever change it. This is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. If you'll take this little thing here and get what represents the bread. 
I want you to think about this. When Jesus is with disciples in the upper room, and he's transforming the Passover into the Lord's Supper, and when he says, this is my body for you, what's he saying? He's saying that all that has happened up until this point, I am the promised Messiah. And he's transforming their thinking because they didn't think about a Messiah suffering. They wanted a king, and he was a king. But what they had to understand is what we all need is salvation. What we need is the Messiah to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need a perfect one. We need one who appeared And we can say of his appearing, the grace of God has appeared. And the same one who gives his body for us, gives his body in crucifixion for us, is the one whom we can say, there is a coming appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. And just as they did then. I read the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, And when they had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see that word remembrance? One of the greatest disciplines of our life as believers is a remembering. Remembering the past. Remembering the promises for the future. But I want you to see here in verse 14, the first part, our status as we wait in hope. Our status. Look with me. Verse 14. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. You see, what He's doing here is He's He's clearing the ground as He calls us to wait in hope from grace to glory. And then He says, okay, remember what He has done for you as you wait. Remember your status. The language He uses here is purposeful. He's tying all of the things He's saying to Old Testament things that would flash in their mind. Remember what God has been doing and how you are experiencing it at a level nobody ever has before. Look with me. He gave Himself for us. We could say He sacrificed Himself for us. This is linked to the Passover. The the, the idea that He gave Himself for us. This is language of substitution. A substitutionary atonement. He died not for His own sins, He had none. But for the sins of those who would believe in Him. But it goes on to say, He did it to redeem us. He was our substitute to redeem us. The word means free us, to liberate us. And that's key to everything else he says. 
He's calling us to live in this amazing freedom that can only come through the fact that He has come and He is our substitute. We are to say, we are redeemed. They would also be thinking back to redemption from bondage in Egypt. God redeems a people for His own. He freed us from bondage. As we wait, we are redeemed. Well, we go through this and we go through that. Yes! But we wait as the redeemed. But notice what he also says. From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Not only are we redeemed, we're cleansed. In, in Ezekiel 37.23, it says that we are cleansed by the blood of the covenant. That is fulfilled in what we celebrate at the Lord's table. Luke 22.20 Jesus says that His blood is the blood of the new covenant. We are cleansed by the blood of the covenant. And all of the blood that was shed in the past was pointing ahead to the blood of the new covenant, which is the blood that cleanses. We are cleansed. We are changed. He doesn't leave us the same. But finally, look at the end. A people for His own possession. When God delivered the people from the bondage in Egypt and gathered them together. Exodus 19.5 says they're described as my treasured possession. The King James translates this, a peculiar people. I kind of like that word. The point here is not really odd, but we need to remember that we are called to be a people who doesn't live for the same values of the world around us. To say that we are a part of the kingdom of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven even now, is to say that somebody whose citizenship is not in heaven can't see the same way that we see. A peculiar people. But probably this is best translated a chosen people. A special people. A treasured people. I love that phrase. I think about the people I know who have adopted children and brought them into the family and, and they look at them and we treasure you. And yet, all of our love is imperfect for God to say we are a, His own possession. We are a chosen people, a special people. We are God's treasured possession. He has brought us into His family. So as we wait... We are redeemed, we are cleansed, and we are treasured. You see, the gospel frees us from the bondage to sin. We still struggle, but we're free from the bondage. I want you to think about it. Bondage to sin in two different directions. They really have the same root. Let's say bondage to, to sin in license. License, you just say, I don't care what anybody else says, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what my family says, I don't care what God says. If there is a God, I'm just going to do what I want to do. License. Or you think about somebody who the bondage to sin comes in a completely different way. I'm going to live a regimented life according to these priorities and these rules, and that's going to prove that I am better than other people. And maybe even God will take notice. I'm a cut above. Both of those are people who are in bondage to sin, whether it be legalism or license. Because you know what's at the heart of both of those? 
These people behave totally differently, but they have the same problems. They're preoccupied with self. The person who says, I'll do what I want to do, what nobody, no matter what anybody says, is preoccupied with self. And the person who says, I'm going to do this list of things that I've committed to better than other people is preoccupied with self. It's the gospel that liberates us from both. The gospel allows us to understand that License, us trying to rule our own lives and be our own God, never leads to anywhere that you could call freedom. It only leads into different forms of chains. And the gospel tells us that we can't look at anybody else and say we are inherently better than them because we're not, because what every single one of us have deserved and earned with our lives is nothing but damnation. Our best righteousness is filthy rags. And so we are liberated from trying to get our own self-identity by how we stack up with other people. We wait in hope because we focus on Jesus Christ, who is the good news. For us, the body and the blood, as you take what represents his blood shed for us, I want you to think about what it means. There is not one deed that you ever did that earned you the right to drink from this cup. In fact, The only people who should drink from this cup is the people who know that you, in and of yourself, have no right to do so. And if you you think you have a right to do so because of something you've done, you're mocking the God whose blood it represents. No, this is a cup for people who say, the only thing I ever earned, even with my best deeds, was the judgment of God. And my only hope is not 99% grace and 1% me, but 100% what He has done for me. His blood for us is because without it, every single one of us is doomed and damned. And if you know that, then you don't spend your time looking around at the fact other people are taking the cup because you're so overwhelmed with what Jesus has done that permits you to take it. He stood in that room and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When Paul is explaining all of this in 1 Corinthians 11, he concludes like this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Do you see it? Looking back. Looking forward. And that brings us to the, very, the final clause in this section. The very end of verse 14, we see this. Zeal from grace to glory. Zeal. You see, what this is supposed to produce in our life is zeal. Look, look with us here. Who are zealous for good works. The, the grace of God doesn't erase 
the responsibility we have for good works, it changes the ground of them. None of us have ever done anything we could describe as a good work that we offer to God for righteousness. Our best righteousness is but filthy rags. But what it does is we are actually changed and and what we've experienced in the grace of God makes us different people. So Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even our walking in them is grace. But a people who have been liberated, who are zealous for good works. So the, the word means enthusiastic. It means excited, eager. And by the way, the good works are the obedience of faith. They're not just simply good deeds hanging in the abstract. They're the outflow of a life of faith. Think about it this way. We are freed for good works. For the first time in our lives, we are freed for good works. For the first time in our lives, we, we, we don't have to calculate what we're doing for what we can get out of it because that's not what's been done to us. And no matter what anybody thinks about what we do, it doesn't change the fact that we live between grace and glory as the redeemed, the cleansed, and the treasured. You see, that's what liberates us. I wonder if zealous for good works describes you. It doesn't if you're trapped in the moment. If, if all you're doing is thinking about what's going on right now and you're closing everything else off with blinders, I guarantee you you're not zealous for good works because you're trapped by the debilitating focus on self that doesn't allow you to see beyond you. And not if you live your life looking over the shoulder to others. If you're trying to get your identity from how you stack up to other people, then those other people are not very good objects for you to love and sacrifice for because they are competitors. And if they look better, you actually look worse. But you see, the gospel gives us the ability to stop that kind of thinking because we never earned anything that mattered for eternity. What matters for eternity was given. So we're not competing with anybody else. We just want other people to know the grace that we know. And you're not zealous for good works. You're not eager and enthusiastic if you live based on your fear of the future. And when I say the future, that may be five minutes in the future or 50 years in the future. You see, that's really a manifestation of being preoccupied with self. Because if we keep looking back and we keep looking forward, one thing we realize is that God usually does some of the most amazing things in the bleakest of times. That doesn't mean we want bleak times. But it means that bleak times don't does not change that fact. And we can wait. We can have an expectation. We can have a hope. Because this is between grace and glory. And we know grace and glory is coming. That's a fact. But here's the truth. Many of us are afraid of freedom. I've actually 
talked to somebody who was in prison and uh, one time and they said they actually preferred to live in prison than freedom. It was just easy. They didn't know what to do with freedom. Now that sounds like a shake your head. How could anybody think like that? It probably hits closer to home than a lot of us would like to think. You know, you get comfortable. Comfortable sort of pulling in, self-protecting, having your list that you try to manage that makes you feel okay about yourself. But, but here's what freedom does. It says, go do anything that would honor God. But, but it makes me feel like this. Go do it. Right? Freedom. Freedom gives you a feeling in your gut that this is bigger than you and you can't just live or ought not just live protecting yourself. Freedom can be frightening. But when we lean into the freedom that God is calling us to live out and obey Him, it's always better for us, ultimately. But it's hard for us to learn it if we never step out because we get comfortable in our own fear. Zeal. From grace to glory. I, I think it's appropriate today on a day where we take up the ends of the earth offering. A portion of that goes to what's called the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. To point you to a letter that Lottie Moon, this woman who gave her life to serve Jesus in China, wrote on September 15, 1887. It's the letter that launched what we call the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. She was burdened that more people would come to the mission field and that more money would come and more people would hear the gospel. And she writes a letter and she says, what better time than the time when we celebrate the greatest gift of all that we would give to the cause of the spread of the gospel around the world. But one portion of this letter is so reflected by the zeal that we read about when we get to verse the end of verse 14, and the way the text has shaped our thinking to get there. Listen to what she says. How many there are among our women, she was focused on women starting this offering, how many there are among our women, alas, alas, who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing. Forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God and so aid in bringing the answer to the petition our Lord taught His disciples, Thy kingdom come. I say, Amen, Lottie Moon. Thus, we wait in active gospel zeal from grace to glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to apply the truth of Your Word. I pray for those here today who would be apart from Christ, who just simply don't know where they stand in Your sight. They don't know if they're saved. They don't know if they're a believer. They don't know if they're in Christ. Are those who perhaps know that they're not? I pray that this would be the day when they cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and they know Your saving grace, O oh Lord. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would use this time to set aside to think about the birth of Christ. 
to remember. To remember the past and to remember the future. That we might be a people of whom it could say, oh, those folks, because of Jesus, they were zealous for good works, no matter what. In Christ's name we pray, amen.